I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. Welcome to the broadcast. This is Theology Unplugged. I am joined in studio here by my friends and colleagues, JJ, Sam, and Tim. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Doing great. Doing yeah. good. Sam and JJ are pastors at uh, Bridgeway, Bridgeway Church. How are things going there at Bridgeway? They're going well. You guys quit the ministry so you could hide out at the Credo House. Yeah, you don't have to deal with people. Tim, Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> Tim, You've right. exposed my wounds. No longer pastors. <laughs> actually, you just pastor uh, everybody, so your job's harder. Yeah. 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 Well, we, we have uh, actually no responsibilities for anybody, so we can pick up and do what we want. We can be loose. Yeah. No, <laughs> no. No, no exercise of church discipline. That's, that's the reason why we got out. Tim, how are we doing? Doing good. Things are going well. We're really excited that we're going to have Yusto Gonzalez here uh, tomorrow, uh, the time of this broadcast, and it'll probably be the day that uh, that you hear this. We'll have Yusto at the Credo House, Dr. Yusto Gonzalez, speaking about how heresy helped the ancient church, and we are really excited about that. We're expecting to have the Credo House just totally jam-packed, and uh, we are building a members-only area uh, that we'll have uh, month-long free trials to, so any of you listening can have access to that. Uh, soon and on there not only will we have all of Yusto Gonzalez's videos of the day that he'll be at the Credo House but we have other people as well Greg Kokel, J.P. Moreland, Dan Wallace uh, uh, on there as well but then also every class that we teach throughout the week as well and so uh, but anyway we're so excited because that's one of the dreams of the Credo House is just to be a neighborhood seminary for people who can't go to seminary and to have Dr. Gonzalez come and teach church history is kind of a dream for the two of us. And on the membership we have yes. the video now, at least this video, right? That's right. So right now, as we are speaking, we are videotaping this, which is a little dangerous because JJ didn't shower this morning. But uh, <laughs> but we're videotaping. You can't see the stink. More yeah. dangerous for us in the room with yeah, than it right. is for those who are merely yeah. watching. There's no smell of vision. But at the same time, yes, we are. We're videotaping these, and they'll be in the members area as well, just so that you can see what we look like and the the nonverbal communication that we do as we're doing the podcast as well. All right, guys, well, we're going to continue our conversation today about Roman Catholicism, <laughs> and specifically, we're going to be talking about uh, the doctrine of purgatory and uh, how that fits in and and uh, try to understand that, you know, from the perspective of Roman Catholics, because I think that whenever we're talking about the doctrine of purgatory, it's very hard to find something from Protestant standpoint that is quite so foreign, because we just don't ever find anything like that in the scriptures. And so one of the questions that I'm continually asked whenever we talk about the doctrine of purgatory is just where in the world did that come from? It seems to come almost out of left field for most people, especially that are Protestants. Why would anybody believe in purgatory? Now, Protestants normally do not believe in a purgatory. Um, I know that there are some Anglo Catholics that do believe in a purgatory. I also, um, also, uh, Eastern Orthodox, interestingly enough, do not hold to a purgatory, at least in a formal sense like Roman Catholics do. So it is uniquely a Roman Catholic doctrine, uh, dogmatized in the Roman Catholic Church because of so many uh, just references to it in, in the creeds and the councils and the catechism. So maybe there's no formal 
decree about it, but it is just assumed and has been assumed for some time. But let's talk about it. What is purgatory, guys? I think just most clearly speaking, purgatory is a place. It's not hell, so don't think hell. It's not hell, uh, but it is most simply a place after death where people go to be purged of sin in order to be uh, able to attain heaven. Purged with fire? Uh, well, I mean, I'm not sure exactly the details, but it is a, it is a place, though, of, of time where someone is there uh, between death and a new life in heaven where they are made right to be able to make it into heaven. So, Michael, you're, of course, thinking of 1 Corinthians 3.15, which they'll use as a proof text, that, that you're purified, your works are burned up, and, and they take that as a reference to, to purgatory. Well, <laughs> you said it's not hell, and I thought, well, if, if you're in there and you're purging your sin and there isn't any sense suffering, and then you got fire, then I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. not that much difference, it doesn't seem. Yeah. Yeah. Peter Kreeft addresses that, and he would say that uh, it sounds rough, but compared to hell, it's like heaven. You know? And then he goes on to say there's not three places for us Catholics, there's two, and that purgatory is actually a, a part of heaven, and don't be thinking of it as a third place. It's kind of a halfway yeah. house. Yeah, a halfway house with the expectation that you're going to get better yeah. and you're going to graduate the program and you're going to be the better for it. I can give a, a good description of purgatory from uh, I brought an object lesson for us today. <laughs> I don't know if they can see that very well on the video. But um, several years ago, I co-officiated a wedding that was done in a Catholic church. Now, how they let a Protestant like me do that in a Catholic church, I'll never know. But it was in Dallas. And out in the foyer, they had multiple, uh, they're, they're not baseball cards, they're kind of, but <laughs> it's got a picture of an individual who allegedly is Jesus, and um, I, I trust that Jesus doesn't look anything like that, please, Lord. But on, <laughs> but on the back, um, it has the name of a lady, it says, uh, my Jesus, have mercy on the soul of, and it lists her name, and her birth date, and her death, uh, she died on September 12, 1971, and then there's this prayer. O gentlest heart of Jesus, ever present in the blessed sacrament, ever consumed with burning love for the poor captive souls in purgatory, have mercy on the soul of thy departed servant. Be not severe in thy judgment, but let some drops of thy precious blood fall upon the devouring flames, and do thou, O merciful Savior, send thy angels to conduct thy departed servant to a place of refreshment, light, and peace. Amen. May the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. So um, here's Jesus who is apparently consumed with burning love for poor captive souls in purgatory. So it's not a good place if they're poor and they're captive. Mm. And Jesus needs to have mercy on them. And it says, be not severe in thy judgment but let drops of your precious blood fall upon the devouring flames. It sounds a little bit like hell, doesn't it? Yeah. But obviously that's not what they intend by it. Uh, but it's interesting that wherever Gertrude, and that was her name, is or was, it doesn't sound pleasant. And uh, this is apparently, they encourage people to pray uh, that Jesus would have mercy on them and release them from their captivity in purgatory and bring them into his presence in heaven. Well, 
uh, from from the Roman Catholic standpoint, you know, you do have that. You have heaven, and then you have hell, and this is the midway point. If you make it to purgatory, you're going to make it to heaven. You never go from purgatory to hell. So take heart. If you find yourself in purgatory, eventually you'll get there uh, to heaven. But most uh, Catholic theology says that uh, just about everybody goes through purgatory. I mean, there's not many people who, who skip purgatory, even, you know, the popes and some of the most Mary righteous. made it through without having to go through purgatory. Yeah. So we'll talk about that in few. future weeks. Uh, but purgatory has to do, I think you have to bring in this, this distinction between mortal and venial sins, mm-hmm. because the whole idea from a Roman Catholic standpoint is that like us, we believe that you have to be able to stand before God in, in your perfection or in perfection before you are acceptable to him. And so from the Protestant standpoint, we stand in Christ. We are clothed in Christ. We have his righteousness that has been imputed to us. Therefore, whenever we stand before God, we can stand before him because we stand before him in Christ. However, Roman Catholic theology does not have the same imputation. We talked about last week, it was an impartation of righteousness rather than an imputation of righteousness. And so somehow we've got to make it to heaven and be perfect. And we have our problem sins that we have to deal with. Uh, Some of these are mortal sins and some of them are venial sins. A mortal sin is that which you commit that is the really bad sins that will remove the grace of God from your soul, you know, murder, adultery, uh, missing mass without a valid excuse, you know, the, those types of things that are that are really terrible in the Catholic theology. I mean, anything can be a mortal sin as long as the intentionality is behind it, but that will send you straight to hell. However, hopefully you die without any mortal sins on your soul. You have had last rites performed upon you. You have, you have gone to penance and confession enough to where you have none of those really bad sins on your soul, but you definitely will have some um, uh, venial sins. Venial sins are forgivable sins. They're sins that are that are uh, not quite so bad. You know, the little white lies that you told and uh, that 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 kind of stuff that keep you from being able to stand before God in perfection. And so, the whole idea in Roman Catholic theology is that that people are forgiven, uh, but yet they still have to suffer some type of uh, punishment for their sins. And so it's kind of like whenever you have a child who has um, has messed up and they come to their parents and they say, please forgive me. And your parent says, yes, you're forgiven, but you're still grounded. Mm-hmm. And so purgatory is kind of the still grounding of the, uh, uh, the sin. And so that's how they would answer that. You'd say, well, if you're forgiven, aren't you, don't you bypass judgment? And Roman Catholic theology would say no, because you have to be purified. There is this purification process that even though you're forgiven, and even though you're going to eventually make it to heaven, and even though it's Jesus Christ and the basis of the cross that forgave you, you still have to suffer punishment or a cleansing so that we can stand before God in perfection. And I'd, I'd be interested to hear Roman Catholics clarify that, because in, in the latest version of their catechism, they seem to take great pains in the section on purgatory to say, this is a purification, and it's entirely different from the punishment of the damned, end quote. So they, they, it seems like they, want, they don't want the words punishment and purification to get mixed up, and yet it's hard not to see something related to punishment happening here. 
Well, well, because just being outside of heaven for however long, I mean, seems punishment in itself. Uh, and so there seems to be some sort of a punishment. I think the, the basis for the distinction is, is that um, the punishment or the judgment that is suffered in purgatory eventually and inevitably leads to heaven, whereas the punishment uh, and the suffering in hell um, remains in hell. There is no hope for ultimate reconciliation. But you're right, there is a... When you use the word suffering or judgment or punishment um, or even a purging and it happens with fire, there is, there is discomfort that is incurred. There is some sort of anguish that the individual Christian is compelled to endure because of the sins he or she has committed, which in my opinion undermines altogether the finality and the sufficiency of the suffering of Christ on the cross. The point of the cross is that through faith we have forever and finally been set free from any anguish or suffering uh, in the eternal state with regard to our sin. And it seems to me purgatory significantly undermines that. Well, it's revelatory. They don't have many sort of proof texts. One of them is from the apocryphal book, as you guys know, of Second Maccabees chapter 12, verse 46, quoting Judas Maccabeus as... as making atonement for the dead that they might be delivered for their, from their sins. So it's very interesting that that word atonement is even right there. He, they got to pay. They got to pay for what they did. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, the difference, I mean, we want to we be really fair to our Catholic friends. Uh, the difference is they would say that, yes, you are in a sense making atonement, and yes, you are suffering judgment, but it's not in order that you will be saved. You are already saved, mm -hmm. but you have not yet entered into the fullness of salvation and the bliss of being in the presence of God. Uh, so again, it's this this middle ground, this halfway house. Um, still, though, um, it seems to me that we have a serious compromise here of the sufficiency and finality of Christ's sufferings. I agree, too. I think this is a, a important place to realize and remember that we do have so much in common with Roman Catholics, and, and especially on the point that they are not looking to the help of Buddha or looking to the help of demons to make it. You know, they are they are looking to the help of, of God, looking to the help of Jesus. You know, they are looking in the right place, but what we would say for sure is that uh, this is unneeded looking. Uh, so, you know, kudos to you for, for not rejecting Jesus in this process, that you're recognizing you're only in this process because you've put your, your trust in Jesus as your Savior, but you are uh, unnecessarily in this process because we do, we do believe in a cleansing as well. You know, we believe in kind of a purgatory type thing, a cleansing thing, but for us, it's, it's a clean, because, because right now, and pur I use, let me use purgatory or cleansing and not purgatory, but cleansing in the sense that that we right now have fallen bodies. We will one day have glorified bodies in heaven. So there will be a transition for us from the bodies we have now to the bodies that we will be uh, wearing or that 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 we will be. Uh, we don't just wear uh, bodies; we are people with bodies, and those bodies will be glorified in heaven. So there is a transition that happens, but but we just believe that all of that work is done by God, for God, through the power of God, and we are merely uh, participants allowing him to do the work through us and in us. So in essence, it seems as if, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that purgatory is more technically the consummation of sanctification. Mm-hmm. It's not so much uh, salvation, because they would say everybody in purgatory is saved. 
as Michael indicated a moment ago, this, there's a distinction. Uh, you know, you referred to um, venial and mortal sins, and related to those, to venial sin, Catholics talk about temporal punishment, and with regard to mortal sin, they talk about eternal punishment. And they would say that eternal punishment has been uh, removed from the believer uh, by the grace of God, but there is still an outstanding temporal punishment that they must endure. So on the one hand, you know, for, well, let me, it's interesting here. I'm just thinking, although I just said it's kind of the consummation of sanctification, um, in another sense, it's not because we don't typically think of sanctification as primarily achieved by our being judged or by our experiencing anguish or by our being suffering the flames, uh, to use their language. And yet that is involved in purgatory. On the other hand, um, it's it, Tim, you were right. The Protestant view, we are being progressively conformed to the image of Christ. Sin, we pray, is being progressively eradicated from us. And we believe that will be consummated in glorification, an instantaneous movement, transition from one to the other. But the Catholics don't believe in the instantaneous nature of glorification. Mm -hmm. They believe that sanctification continues beyond death and glorification is only attained after however many years one endures the suffering of purgatory. And the years are usually connected with the sins that were committed by that person. So if someone, I mean, you would expect, so this lady who you have her card, uh, you know, either she was a tremendous sinner and they're expecting she'll be in purgatory for quite some time, or, or perhaps, you know, she wasn't and they're expecting, you know, wow, it's only been 30 years or 40 years. I bet you she's probably almost through. Let's pray her through type idea. Poor Gertrude. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I love what you guys are saying because I've been trying to do that this week, to be sympathetic to the view, to seek to yeah. be persuaded by it so that I can at least be empathetic and understanding how they could hold it, that it's true. We recognize that God's going to do something between now and after he returns, and we won't be the same. Yeah. And and they are positing a, a different process. You yeah. know, Philippians 1.6 is reminding us that there's this timeline that's completed at the day of Jesus Christ. And they see the timeline as moving past the day of Jesus Christ. And we're going, no, he's going to finish what he started in us, this yeah. process of sanctifying us in actions and thoughts and desires yeah. at Christ's return. They see it moving beyond it. Yeah, yeah we see an immediate presence uh, of God uh, once we die. So if I were to die today, even though I'm not resurrected, I would be in the presence of Christ. Um, you know, like the thief on the cross didn't necessarily pass through purgatory. He says, you will be with me in paradise. And mm -hmm. I, I suppose that he probably had plenty of venial sins to take care of. But so, so we have an immediate presence of Christ while they have a washing up, a, a cleansing, getting the, I often talk about getting the dirt out from underneath your fingernails, you know, the final steps of, of getting prepared to see God. And so a lot of Catholics these days are talking about it more positively instead of being purged, being prepared. The idea of you're getting cleaned up, you're you're getting adorned for the for the bride, and so the the purging has to do with that. But let's talk for a minute just about justification, because let, let's put it from the standpoint of you are a Catholic, and and JJ, you said just a minute ago, I, I just want to understand why. You know, I that's the first place I want to go before anything else. Why of purgatory? I mean, what's the biblical grounds? What's the historical grounds? What's the theological grounds for this doctrine that makes it to where 1.1 billion people who proclaim the name Christ believe in this mid-stopping point? What's, what's the grounds? Anybody 
Well, have any ideas? I think Catholics themselves would acknowledge that there are no biblical grounds, explicit, explicit biblical grounds. Now, of course, from their point of view, since Second uh, Maccabees is included in their canon, uh, they would say we have grounds there, as JJ quoted a moment ago, um, for belief in the idea of uh, someone who has died and who is whose sins have not yet been fully washed clean or atoned for, and prayers can be offered on their behalf by those who remain on earth. So that is the only uh, so-called textual grounds we might have. Obviously for us, Second Maccabees is not in the Protestant canon. We don't believe it's inspired. It's instructive historically, but um, it's not definitive theologically. So that would be their only explicit textual ground. The and word, even the, then, it's just a historical account. Doesn't necessarily mean he right. was being encouraged. Right. And even then, I mean, the sin that they're praying for people for in the Maccabees account is the sin of idolatry, which is a mortal sin, which they wouldn't be in purgatory anyway. You know, I mean, because they they see the guys laying there and they see the idols around their necks, and they say we must pray for these people. But if they are praying for them on the basis of idolatry, then that doesn't support purgatory either way at least the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Well, and in the words of the latest edition of their catechism, the church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. <laughs> so they themselves acknowledge that this well, is a historical Well, those are late Middle Ages and Reformation councils, counter-Reformation Well, councils. purgatory actually didn't become official dogma until 1247 at the Council of Lyon. So, I mean, it had been found in, obviously, in certain documents and was present in the teaching of the church, but did not become official dogma until, what, 1,200 years, well over 1,200 years beyond the resurrection of Jesus. Well, this isn't helping me out on the why. Well, then, I mean, I think the why a lot is it is this theological idea that that you have someone who who granted is a part of the church, granted is, is viewing that they are saved through Jesus, uh, but is dying a sinful person and just a theological recognition that there must be some cleansing that happens in this person before they can stand before Jesus in heaven. And so I think mainly it is born out of this idea that uh, something drastic has to happen in Gertrude's life for her to be able to stand uh, before Jesus in a way that she is cleansed and glorified. And so I think it's a, it's a theological construction, um, not explicitly from the Bible, but also not explicitly against it either, you know, because we affirm that there is a sense of of a cleansing that we view too. But what we would say, though, is that um, we think that Jesus accomplished that work and he was victorious in that work. And we do not have to spend a thousand years uh, trying to get to heaven. Uh, we can instantly, and I think, you know, so many verses are in the favor of the Protestant view of, of Paul, who, who said he was a chief of sinners. So, so Paul is definitely, uh, has sin, and he said, it would be better for me to go and be with Jesus uh, than to stay here. And he didn't say it would be better for me to go and spend a thousand years in purgatory than see Jesus, but it would be better for me to go. Thief on the cross, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, Jesus' story with the rich man and Lazarus, uh, you know, he was brought immediately to his side. And so, um, you know, and then, so I, I think that there are many allusions where we can see um, that we can see why theologically uh, th they can embrace something like purgatory, but where we feel like th there seems to be a freedom in allowing Jesus to have done all of that work and we can just receive his 
uh, victorious finished work. Well, I have an answer for you, Michael, because you asked us a question. Why? Well, how did they get to purgatory? I think purgatory is the inch that gets you a mile off course and flies you into the mountain. Purgatory is a lens into the ways in which we disagree with Roman Catholics on what I must do to be saved. And so if you take this idea that righteousness must inhere within me, that God must look at me and I must be really just in my actual behavior for him to count me as righteous, the implication of that is going to lead to beliefs like purgatory. And we would use terminology more when when God sees you, he doesn't see JJ and all of his sin, he sees Jesus. He sees the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross. And he said, is he in Jesus? Yes. Okay, he's in heaven. And not, well, tell me about his sins and I'll decide when we should let him in. I got an answer for you, Michael. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, the we're answer, giving him so many answers yeah. and he's just unmoved. Okay, but I mean, he's, I know what he's looking for. He's looking for... <laughs> In the absence of explicit textual affirmation, why would this have ever emerged? What would have been the underlying motivation, either the, the theological impulse that would have led people to posit this concept and then to develop it with such incredible intricacy over the centuries? That's really the question. And I think, and this is my, I'm only speaking for myself here, I think the Roman Catholic Church and its sacramental system and its entire approach to Christianity hangs suspended on um, the carrot and the stick approach to Christian living. If you have grounds for giving somebody the complete assurance of salvation, if you can affirm that all their guilt has been uh, wiped clean— and that they are in good standing now and forever with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, many people think that that grants a license to sin, that that uh, creates an excuse for um, um, immorality, that it will not hold people, as it were, close to the church. It will alleviate any sense of obligation they have to be present in the church, to support it financially, uh, to do good works. And so Roman Catholicism at its heart always keeps people in debt. And so if you, if you would assure, for example, those of us in this room, we give each other the assurance that based on faith in what Jesus has done and that alone, we are completely and wholly free of the guilt of sin, past, present, and future, righteous in God's sight, and based on what Christ has done, we, upon death, enter into the immediate blissful presence of Jesus himself. But the Catholic Church, based on its whole penitential system, and this kind of gets us into the whole concept of penance as well, has to keep people on the hook. It has to keep people in a, It's almost as if um, they've bought a house and they're always behind in their mortgage. They can never get it finally paid. And, and the bank likes that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we got to keep people coming back. We got to keep the funds flowing. We got to keep the good works coming our way. And so, um, getting back to our whole concept of eternal punishment versus temporal punishment, and the mortal sin versus venial sin. You can tell me that my mortal sin has been forgiven and my eternal punishment has been um, revoked, but I still have to make that temporal payment, suffer the temporal punishment. So I have to do acts of penance. I have to uh, give money to the poor. I have to sweep up the streets. I have to um, uh, sacrifice more in my tithing to the church. 
Um, I have to serve in a soup kitchen. I have to say a dozen more Hail Marys on a consistent basis. I have to do penance. And the problem is I die and I still have an outstanding debt to pay. I haven't done all my penance. I haven't endured all the temporal punishment. And so I find myself going to, quote unquote, heaven with an outstanding debt, yet not having been paid of these temporal penitential uh, obligations. And that's what purgatory is designed to do, is that it gives me the opportunity over how, howsoever long a period of paying off that temporal debt that I incurred by my sin, but didn't finally pay before I physically died. And that really gets us to the point that what we hold is that God's grace is absolutely scandalous. His grace is scandalous grace. It is undeserved. It makes no sense of, of that he does not require that penance from us. I mean, I think of a guy like Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, I'm fascinated by his story because here he's probably someone that you'd point to as one of the most wretched, vicious people who have, who's ever lived, you know, up on the list with Hitler is a guy like Jeffrey Dahmer. And, but he became a, a believer in prison and the, the story is that, that the other people around him couldn't handle him just quickly becoming a Christian who in Christ has been forgiven of all of his heinous acts. And so they actually killed him in prison because they couldn't handle it. Now, we would say there's this thing inside of all humans that say he doesn't deserve to be in heaven. Jeffrey Dahmer does not deserve to be in heaven based on what he has done. And we feel that, so we say he must be in purgatory for 10,000 years to pay for all of that wretched sin. But where we would say is, you know what, we're no better than him. In the eyes of God, none of us are better than Jeffrey Dahmer. None of us deserve to be in heaven. And that's what's so scandalous about the victory of Jesus on the cross is that we instantly get to heaven because of his work, not because of our penance. And, uh, and I think that that's, what, that that's the freedom that the four of us sitting around this table feel is an undeserved love of God, freedom, where we do not have our sins weighing over our heads, uh, where uh, under a purgatory system, you are never sure exactly how God thinks about you because he might still pour his cup of wrath on you after you die. The finality of the assurance of eternal salvation is a threat to the very core of Roman Catholic thinking and Christian living. And it's a threat to your church too. You know, if you preach a scandalous grace, people might go and abuse it. They might die in that abusive state, but you're still, they're still in Christ, you know? And so there's a potential for all of us to say, you don't deserve Jesus. But then it's like, oh shoot, I don't either. Well, and this is Romans 6. Isn't that the objector that Paul answers? What then are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? So there's a fundamental misunderstanding that true grace changes us, delivers us from slavery to sin, and then enslaves us to Jesus exactly, and binds us to him. And that grace, that kindness compels us to obey. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's a fear of antinomianism there, that they're going to just Precisely. run reckless. Precisely. Yeah. And, they, and the, there's a misunderstanding that grace changes us. And well, not only forgives us, it changes us. And that's why Sam preaches every Sunday and teaches his people. That's why we're all teaching people, because as Augustine said, you know, if, if you're in Christ and you can do whatever you want... Then he says, well, what do you want to do now that you're in Jesus? What, what is your affection? What is your desire? And, and if you have truly you understood... Did you say what Augustine says? 
Well, Augustine had that. Uh, what What do you want to do now? Love I mean, I was, Christ I was, and do yeah, 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 He was, said, "Love was, God was, and yeah, do whatever yeah, you yeah, want." Yeah, I, was, I was bringing it up to the 21st century. <laughs> sorry, I didn't quote him in Latin like you would from the but, translated yeah. from the Greek. But seriously, uh, getting back to this question, Michael, I don't know if I've satisfied your curiosity or answered your why. I think that in the in the progressive development. Not just of purgatory. We, we can't really isolate this from the entire sacramental system of Roman Catholicism and the whole concept of penance and confession and absolution and, and uh, um, you know, last rites and all of these various dimensions in which the grace of God is tied to the sacraments. Um, I think Catholicism, it developed over time in such a way that they needed a theology, they needed a penitential system, a sacramental system that kept people coming back. Mm. They had to have a way of keeping um, a sense of obligation um, heavily weighing on the hearts and the conscience of, of, the, of their parishioners so that they would be tied to the penitential system, tied to the sacraments. The idea, that's why Luther was such a threat and such a, a devastating threat because Luther basically said, I can walk outside the walls of a church and stand as an individual human being on a dirty street and look up to heaven and by faith alone gain instant, eternal, and irrevocable access uh, into the presence of Christ forever. Mm-hmm. That severed the very heart of Roman Catholicism because Catholicism said, no, 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 you got to come back inside the walls because the grace that brings you that kind of assurance is only found in the system of sacraments that we provide you. And there are things that you must do. And you can never, as an individual, relate to God in that way. You can only relate to him through us. And as we dispense to you the grace of God that brings forgiveness and sanctification and justification. Which Luther's big point was that, well, if the church dispenses that to you, why do they force Gertrude to be in purgatory for a thousand years? Wouldn't the church give her enough grace to make it to heaven? Let me be fair real quick to the Roman Catholic system is that they do not speak in terms of years with regard to purgatory any longer. As of the early 20th century, it's kind of forbidden to talk about uh, purgatory with regard to years. Now, let me let me ask you guys this, though, because you and I look at the Roman Catholic system, and I think this is kind of a theme that maybe has been unstated so far, but this is the way that I look at it, is that there's a lot of dynamic change, that there's contradictions. You know, as Luther said, that the councils contradict themselves. In other words, just history contradicts itself, that there's a progressive development, and we need to allow for some of that. Now, Catholics could never admit to that, especially within the, uh, the magisterial authority, because the magisterial authority cannot contradict itself. However, w- within the development of this system, they say you cannot speak with, in terms of years with regard to purgatory any longer. Think of it more as a timeless thing. Let's put it more positively instead of saying it's a, it's a punishment. Let's say it's a cleansing up before dinner. Now let's put that timeless. If it's a timeless cleansing up before dinner, then is there any different than what we believe happens to us instantaneously at death? If it's not, if it no longer hurts, or we're not sure if it hurts, if it's no longer in time, it's timeless. If it's just a positive thing about finishing up uh, and perfecting yourself instantaneously, then are we okay with that? No. 
No? For first of all, the, co- the whole concept of being timeless is incoherent because, granted, there may, you, they may not measure uh, duration in uh, purgatory by uh, my watch and the ticking of the second hand or the rising and the setting of the sun as we do, but there's still sequence. The fact is, if you're having a cause, namely the suffering in the flames, which brings about an effect, which is you're being cleansed, then there is duration, there's sequence, and there's a consciousness of it. So there is time. It's just not measured in the way that we would do so on the earth in in our context and situation here. So I don't buy this notion that it's timeless. There has to be some degree of sequence because you're talking about cause and effect in their experience there. And it seems like the person would be consciously aware of every moment. You know, it's not because it wouldn't, you know, if you just say, well, I was asleep the whole time and then I woke up. I mean, that's uh, that's not what they're describing. That's not what they're describing of Gertrude's experience. Right. There's a conscious anguish that they're enduring. And then, of course, this all ties in something maybe we can talk about in the next uh, our next podcast is what people on Earth are supposed to be able to do to diminish the time and the degree of suffering that people have in purgatory through offering, well, for praying for Gertrude um, or offering prayers or doing works of penance again, or in the course in the medieval period, paying indulgences, which opens up a whole nother can of worms. Well, uh, I think we would all agree, at least sitting here, that uh, the whole idea or concept of purgatory uh, runs a front to the gospel because it undermines what Christ did and the significance that Christ did by saying, yeah, he did this, and he let's say he purchased purgatory, and he made it possible to go to purgatory, but it's really a fundamental redefining uh, from what I get from you guys of the application of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yes? Yes. Yes. All right, well, we'll, uh, we'll pick back up next time, continuing to talk about uh, Roman Catholicism, talked about purgatory here today. And, uh, Tim, do we have anything else to, before we close? Nope. Just may the Lord bless you and keep you. All right.